Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Not podcast. I'm Cap, and I'm not joined by my good friend Charles for this special episode today. Health precautions are preventing us from sharing a small studio, so I asked if he was okay having me record a solo episode to address what by now is not even the latest tragic occurrence of U.S. gun violence. And I apologize to our international listeners, but thankfully for you, this is a U.S.-centric episode because we are the only country on the planet that believes it's more important to protect our right to a gun than to protect our babies. In the weekend that followed Uvalde, there were 14 more mass shootings in our country. 14. What does it say about us as a society when parents don't even have time to grieve before more parents and sons and daughters and sisters and brothers and friends are forced into grief in a different city? The names are different. The location is different. But the tool of destruction is the same. I can remain passive no longer. I can't hear another platitude. I can't bear witness to another slaughter of innocence and do nothing. And I know many, many other people out there feel the same way. I have the emails and text messages to prove it. There's anger and there's a feeling of helplessness. People don't know what to do to even begin to help with the problem. So I've done some research for you and will offer a few things that you might start as a way to a solution. And I know many of you don't want to relive the pain and trauma of Uvalde and will choose not to listen to the rest of this episode. And I understand that response. I was there after Sandy Hook. It disgusted me to my core. And all I would ask is that you consider for a moment that now is the time to drop the re. Here's what I mean by that. We hear about these shootings every single week, and we have a reaction to it over and over again. We have a reaction. We get mad at the TV. We angrily demand of our partner that something has to change. We have a reaction, and it's time to drop the re. It's time for action, not reaction. Always remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So for those of you who were expecting part two of the imposter syndrome episode today, I apologize. We'll release it next week instead. I couldn't put this episode off. For those who do choose to stay and listen, I would ask for two things as we roll our opener. One, realize that the problem won't be solved by us getting a little bit better. We have to get a lot better quickly. And second, you can't think your way to action. Feel the necessity for action because the only way we solve a problem is by getting enough people willing to work for a solution, not to sit back and wait for things to change because it's a complete abdication of our duty to our children and grandchildren to do nothing because we can make a difference. That's always been the essence of this podcast. 
Thinking Knot is a podcast developed to help those who are trying to become better, a little bit better today than yesterday. It is an honest dialogue about the real-life challenges we each encounter as intention meets obstacle in the course of an every day. In our conversation, we weigh rational thought against our gut feeling of what is right, and we forge a path together using what is in our hearts if we can all just awaken and get into rhythm with that beat. Thanks for joining today's discussion. first text came to me like this. 14 elementary school kids murdered and I'm emotionally dead. The next one tried to summarize the underlying problem. Republicans get mad at Biden for a baby formula shortage and then 192 of them vote against an aid bill to help the problem. When half the country doesn't give an F about the people around them, we're done. Both of these responses are valid and speak to the sense of helplessness that surrounds many of our most pressing issues. What can I do to help is a question I've heard over and over again. And it's a really tough question to answer because there's so much working against us on this issue. But let's start with what we need. As much as I'd love to say the answer is to get rid of the guns, I know that's not going to happen. And I'm not in favor of taking away rights guaranteed by the Constitution unless and until the majority decides that that should be done. And there's not a majority that supports that. And I have nothing against hunters or even target shooters. It's not my thing, but I have nothing against it. However, there is a majority of people who support putting some sensible restrictions on the Second Amendment. So let's focus our immediate efforts on limiting the types of weapons that are sold, the amount of ammunition that they can hold, on making guns safer with biometric locks and other devices to restrict their use by non-owners, and by limiting their sale to people who have been vetted either by age or by background check. That would be a great start. So what's standing in the way of this sensible and responsible approach to gun ownership? We voted people into power and entrusted them to fulfill their oath to represent the interests of the people. When over 90% of people believe some form of gun control is necessary, it boggles the mind that our elected leaders don't represent those interests. And though the second text that I read a moment ago leaned anti-Republican, gun control is not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's a moral issue. We cannot be a moral nation and continue to allow this reprehensible slaughter to go on. We have to demand change. And if it doesn't come, we need to throw out everyone. Democrat and Republican who can't figure it out, who refuse to act on the will of the American people. It's time to throw out the baby, the bathwater, and those who prostitute themselves by accepting blood money from the gun lobby for their non-action. So 
That's the first answer to the question of what can I do? You can hold your elected officials accountable to their duty to serve you, the people, the majority of the country who wants some sensible limits on gun ownership. Do you know how your senators or representatives have voted on gun issues? Do you know how many of them are taking money from the NRA or gun manufacturers? Educating yourself is a foundational requirement of your civic duty to vote. You can go to congress.gov or the congressional record to see the votes on particular gun control bills. The two most current seem to be H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446, and you can search on those to find voting records. H.R. 8 was passed in the House and hasn't even been brought to a vote in the Senate because of a lack of support. So what do we do in that case? Well, maybe one place to start is to take a look at who's getting money from whom so we figure out why they don't promote the will of the majority. And this is harder because of the dark money that affects many of our elections and campaigns. But there are some places to see how much, for example, the NRA has given to senators. BradyUnited.org shares some of this information, which is where I found that my senators in the state of North Carolina have taken over $11 million from the NRA. That's how much they were paid to ignore the will of their constituents. That's how much money they took to ignore the guilt that most people might feel for having the tools to stop a Sandy Hook or a Uvalde from ever happening, but instead chose not to listen to the terrified screams of the victims. We have elections happening in November. It's time to vote for gun control. I urge you not to support any candidate who won't commit to voting for gun control. It's literally the very least we can do. Vote for our children's lives. Make this your priority. I'd like to read a few comments about Uvalde from some of the discussion that's been taking place. And this first one's from Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, whose district includes Uvalde. This is what he said about the systematic unraveling of gun regulations in his state of Texas. You know, I can't imagine what the fealty is to the NRA. I can only suppose that it's money to fund their campaigns. And I say they being my Republican con colleagues in the House or Senate. At the end of the day, what has happened over these years has been simply preposterous, culminating last session with their open carry bill. Not one law enforcement agency, everybody in Texas, every law enforcement agency said, don't do this. I gave a closing argument on that bill. I said, because of this bill, kids are going to die. I never thought that bit of hyperbole was going to happen in my community. I never thought. End quote. And maybe that's why we don't do more, because no one thinks it's going to happen in their community. Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, former mayor of Baltimore, had this to say. I think part of it starts with us owning who we are as Americans. I think sometimes we need to find mirrors that work in our country because too many people look in the mirror and see, 
They think they see someone who values life. But if you say you value life and you let these babies die and do nothing, and you can, your mirror is broken, end quote. And then this from Senator Cory Booker. We should stop talking about the margins in this country. There are so many issues from police reform to common sense gun safety that the majority of us agree on it, but that's not enough. There's got to be more activism and engagement or we're going to lose our precious democracy. We are so out of step with the rest of the world. Everything we're talking about today does not happen in other countries, just here because we tolerate it. And that's the question is how much endurance do we have for horror and wretchedness, pain and death when we have the ability to change it and we just need more people engaged? End quote. Always remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. Nobody needs a lesson in gun violence statistics. To paraphrase one of my favorite podcasters, the numbers are numbing, but here are some numbing numbers you should know. Four. Four is the number of people who have to be shot or killed for a gun violence incident to be termed a mass shooting. In 2021, there were 692 mass shootings in America. There were 610 the year prior. This is unfathomable. Seven. Seven is the current number of years in a row when the number of school shootings with injuries or fatalities has increased. 10.28. 10.28 young people per 100,000 die from gun-related fatalities each year in the U.S., that's higher than the 8.31 per 100,000 who die from motor vehicle deaths. In fact, more children die by gunfire in a year than on-duty police officers and active military members. 49. The firearm homicide rate for teens and young adults in America is 49 times larger than in other high-income countries. 49 times as high. The rate of suicide by gun in this same population is eight times higher than similar countries. More guns is not the solution. 70%. 70% of mass shootings in the U.S. have a connection to domestic violence. Four in ten. Four in ten Americans live in a household with a gun. 30% of people say they own one. 40%. Gun violence in Connecticut dropped 40% when they instituted gun licensing laws. 25%. Gun-related killings went up 25% when Missouri repealed its gun permit law. 84%. 84% of voters in America support universal background checks for gun purchases. Zero. 
Zero is the number of Congress members who have been voted out of office for being pro-gun. Zero. Zero is also the number of senators who have voted for H.R. 8, the House bill that removes the loopholes in background checks. Zero senators have voted for it because it hasn't come up for a vote. Why has it not come up for a vote? Because there aren't enough votes to override a Republican filibuster. 10. 10 is the number of senators it takes to override a filibuster. Essentially, 10 senators are holding up the will of the American people. And finally, 90%. 90% of the guns used in mass shootings come from 5% of gun dealers, many of whom are not required by current law to do background checks. There are those who will suggest that gun violence is just one of the many critical issues facing our country. No doubt. Some might say that climate change will impact more of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren than gun violence ever will. You may be right. And any functioning organization should be able to deal with multiple priorities. And I say that with the full understanding that our government seems to do little on any of the priorities of the majority of Americans. One of the things that I learned running operations was that you need to work on multiple fronts at the same time, but you need to handle crises individually. When something goes majorly wrong and presents a risk to the ongoing operations, you pull together a crisis response team and you put a plan of action in place. You have a select group of people who need to make that their singular focus until the crisis has been handled. That's what we need on the gun control issue. We need a group of people to make this their singular focus until we've fixed the crisis. The Brady Organization can't do it alone. The Sandy Hook Promise won't do it alone. Stand with Parkland, the Prevention Institute, and the Violence Policy Center won't do it alone. We all need to get involved. One of the great embarrassments of my life is that I have done nothing. When Columbine happened, I was shocked, and I did nothing. When Sandy Hook happened, I cried for the parents and the little children lost, and I did nothing. When Las Vegas happened, I was outraged, and I did nothing. And the most regrettable incident of all, it happened at my son's college. A gunman killed two students, one of whom was from our hometown. And I did nothing. I remember the fear of getting the active shooter alert, another uniquely American concern, and desperately reaching out to my son to find out if he was okay. For a moment, I felt the fear of parents who have lost their children to violence, and even that didn't move me to take action. 
I have great shame because I've been one of those who was tangentially touched by gun violence. And even that didn't make me take action. Sure, I'd research the issue. I'd donate money to groups and candidates who supported gun control, but I did a lot more reacting than acting. And part of the issue was that I didn't know what to do. Most people don't know what to do. We feel helpless fighting the gun lobby and the political machine and the other horrifying machinations that enable this epidemic of violence. But it's time for us all to figure out what part we can play in solving this crisis. It's time for us all to get to work to take action until this crisis has been solved. So in the next segment, I'll offer a few suggestions. First, let's talk about what doesn't work. Allocating more tax dollars to hiring police for schools. So instead of addressing the problem of easy access to guns, lawmakers have increased security within many of our schools, which is kind of like putting firefighters in forests to wait for thunderstorms to develop. It's nice to have them there when lightning strikes, but it doesn't begin to address the root issue. And this police presence has not surprisingly led to higher rates of school arrest for minor school disturbances and made many of our young people feel more like suspects than students. And then there are those who believe that what we really need is more guns. Arm the teachers, arm the administrators, arm the parents. But there's been about 30 very well-crafted studies that have shown that guns are linked to more crimes, murders, rapes, and others, and they do nothing to deter violence. So instead, here's what you can do. I'm not a fan of cancel culture, but I am aware that the thing with the biggest voice in our country is the almighty dollar. So boycott brands that don't support or contribute to gun safety issues. Use your wallet to demand change. And not just your wallet. Stop giving your attention to causes that run counter to stopping this epidemic. The news you watch. We just went through a primary election period in my state, and it was sickening to see the candidates brandishing guns in their ads. 692 mass shootings in our country last year, and these candidates thought it was a good idea to promote guns in their ads and political messaging. I don't even know if it's possible to request stations to not allow guns in the political ads that show up on their airtime, but I'm sure going to check into that. And what about the stores that we shop at? Are you aware that many of them contribute to elected officials who don't support reasonable gun control? Stop shopping there. Money talks. Next, Contact your elected representatives and demand that they support and advocate for effective gun violence prevention legislation. You can call your U.S. senators and representatives via the U.S. Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 and tell them that you support closing the loopholes 
and background checks, as well as federal ban on assault weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines. Or you could join a local gun violence prevention organization. You can visit SUPGV, that's S-U-P-G-V dot org, and it stands for States United to Prevent Gun Violence. It's a national umbrella organization that works with groups within various states to uh, set up programs to combat gun violence. You could contribute money to the Sandy Hook Action Fund or Brady United or to candidates in your area who support gun control. Getting down to the very grassroots level, you can urge your local officials, whether they're mayors or county commissioners or state government, to support mental health funding, domestic violence bills, gun violence restraining orders, or ERPOs, which are extreme risk protection orders, so that people who are unstable can be blocked from purchasing guns. Also, encourage those local officials to join with other communities to build a network to combat gun violence. Now, there's one that's put together by Prevention Institute's Unity City Network and Cities United. These kinds of programs that band together, that's the grassroots level of working together to get ahead of the gun violence problems. Similarly, you can support community planning and the implementation of a comprehensive community safety plan that includes both prevention and intervention. So tools such as hospital-based intervention programs and even upstream strategies such as youth employment have proven to be effective. So going to your town's regular monthly meetings are a good place to start. Next, since the NRA lobbied to prevent federal funds from being used to research gun violence, which is ridiculous in itself, the CDC has been restricted from producing research that would allow them to create programs to combat gun violence. So instead, some states are starting to create their own research centers, such as the uh, California-based Firearm Violence Prevention Research Center at UC Davis. Encourage these kinds of programs in your state or through your alma mater and donate where you can to support this important research. You can support healthy norms about masculinity within your own family. Mass shootings are largely a male phenomenon. So be aware of the cultural norms that may support the idea of male power and male dominance. And let's work with our young men to get them to understand that the messaging that they see, the hate messaging and the promotion of guns is not an appropriate outlet. There is a proven link between mental health and gun violence and also a link between impulsive anger and gun violence. So support programs that help people to deal with these issues in your community. And if they don't have them, work to set them up. Finally, 
push for existing technologies to be implemented to advance gun safety, such as biometric locking of guns, pin codes, RFID chips, even such old-fashioned but useful devices as trigger locks. While gun violence is an issue that demands our attention, there's also a lot of gun accidents and self-violence that happen just because of the accessibility of firearms. I'm going to leave you with an interesting idea that I recently read. In between mass shootings in this country, we've been having a discussion about another constitutional amendment, not the Second Amendment, the one that people believe give them a right to military-grade assault weapons. I'm speaking of the 14th Amendment. The amendment cited in Roe v. Wade that the Supreme Court ruled gave a right to privacy in the case of terminating a pregnancy. I'm not here to argue for or against abortion. That's a personal matter that you can make your own mind up on. I will, however, always argue for an individual's rights under settled law. A woman has a right to choose what is best for her health. And yet often the very people who would die to protect their Second Amendment rights are the same people who want to take a woman's right to her own body away or to force her to jump through unreasonable hoops when they can't restrict her decision. So the idea that I read simply espoused that we should apply the same scrutiny and careful consideration to getting a gun as we do for considering an abortion. The post I read suggested this. How about we treat every young man who wants to buy a gun like every woman who wants an abortion? mandatory 48-hour waiting period, parental permission, a note from his doctor proving that he understands what he's about to do, a video he has to watch about the effects of gun violence, and an ultrasound wand up a bodily cavity. Let's close down all but one gun shop in every state and make him travel hundreds of miles, take time off of work, and stay overnight in a strange town to get a gun. Let's make him walk a gauntlet of people holding photos of loved ones who were shot to death, people who call him a murderer and beg him not to buy a gun. Better yet, let's make it so anybody in the state can sue the gun buyer for doing something that the Constitution says he can do. I mean, what's good for one constitutional amendment should be good for another, right? Thanks. For listening to this somewhat disjointed episode today. I uh, have been a little bit scattershot, but I am outraged and I cannot take it anymore. I can't sit by and do nothing anymore. I'll put links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode in the show notes so you can check them out if you want to. And although Charlie isn't here today, he did share some words with me that I'm sure he wouldn't mind me repeating. It's a good way to close out the episode. Some events are too gruesome to rationalize away and too urgent to ignore. Doing nothing is immoral. Arguing about how much slaughter to tolerate is absurd. Standing together to care together means that we cannot spectate our way to the changes these times thrust upon us. These times are our times, time to step into trusting in our own goodness, 
guided by our own sense of human dignity and decency. We cannot be spectators to change, but participants in the goodness by bringing out our own first. Thank you for that guidance, Charlie. I agree. It's time for action and time to let our goodness shine on others. For Charles and for me, we hope your journey is filled with wonder and that you'll allow your outrage to be the catalyst for action. Be good to each other and take care of the children who can't take care of themselves yet. Every highly functioning society in the history of the world meets this one basic requirement.